I went to Woodstock when I was 18. I did the brown acid when they warned you from the stage, don't take the brown acid. I said, oh shit, I just did it. And my story of the brown acid is in here, as well as 32 interviews with a lot of the artists. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great book. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and thank you for joining me on this very special edition of the Scars and Guitars podcast. You just heard Mike Greenblatt, who has written the extraordinary book, Woodstock, Back to Yazga's Farm. It's a sprawling written and pictorial hardcover book that Mike felt compelled to author. I've got sex, drugs, and rock and roll in here like you wouldn't believe. And my personal experiences uh, uh, coalesce with the 32 interviews I did to form a mosaic of perspectives about this event. Think of it, 500,000 people, no police whatsoever, yet not one reported instance of violence. How could that be? And, And then the food ran out? And then the weather, the monsoon? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a hell of a weekend. Mike is also a passionate advocate for equality and social justice. He was a member of one of the student cohorts that used activism and protests to fight for meaningful change back in the 60s and 70s. It's fair to say that Mike is a fellow that wanted to change the world. I was more radical liberal way back. Uh, I remember we closed the damn college down and we picketed and we threw garbage at the board of directors meetings. You know, when I was younger, when you're younger, you're more radical. Uh, and we wondered when we uh, locked ourselves in the in the dean's office overnight, are we really going to have like a Mike started the revolution all right. Long before Woodstock, Back to Yazga's Farm was published, he founded a magazine called Metal Maniacs. This is years before the internet became entrenched in our lives. From his base in New York, it was left to Mike and his staff to bring important heavy metal news, interviews, reviews, correspondence and editorials to thousands of people all over the world. I just happened to be one of them in far-flung Australia. I've got like three dozen, four dozen of these things sitting in my closet collecting dust. I haven't pulled them out in years, but I figure for the occasion, out they came. I've got a feeling that Mike isn't aware of just how important Metal Maniacs was to people like me. The magazine was in circulation throughout the 1990s, eventually ceasing publication in 2009, and for myself, it was the portal to another dimension. I purchased the magazine religiously from the local newsagent and I'd read it from cover to cover, ensuring that I hadn't missed any of the articles. The magazine certainly has humble beginnings. In fact, it sounds as though it was started almost by accident. They had me doing uh, Metal Shop magazine in conjunction with the radio syndicate of the same name. And when I put uh, in the year-end issue uh, Guar as one of the great bands of the year, they, I got called on the carpet and said, we don't broadcast Guar on our radio syndicate. What are you doing? 
And they pulled out, and, and I got yelled at, and that's when I said, well, why don't we do a whole magazine of Guar-type bands? And that's that's how it started, really. So it took Mike a while to get used to covering heavy metal, and the parent company that published Metal Maniacs wasn't exactly well versed in the genre either. Still, Mike covered some of the biggest names in the business as he acclimatised to the role. I did a Guns N' Roses one-shot. It was my very first magazine in 1989 for Sterling's Magazines, and it sold very well. I interviewed all five of them, and it was amazing. And then I did, you know, uh, don't forget, Sterling's Magazines was the province of Teen Beat and 16 Magazine and uh, Teen This and Teen That. So the format, even of Metal Maniacs at the very beginning, full page color pinups we always had to have. Uh, they demanded an editor's page where the editor would have to be on the editor's page with the people he interviewed. Uh, I thought that was sort of garbage, but I sort of got into it later, I must admit. Uh, being choked by Alice Cooper, let's say. Mike had his hands full juggling commitments. And if you bought the magazine and you're wondering why you haven't heard the name Mike Greenblatt, well, there's a very good explanation. They gave me a country music magazine to do. And being a professional journalist, I'll do a country magazine. I'll do a metal magazine. And I wound up doing them both simultaneously. And the boss said, uh, we can't have the metal the metalheads knowing that the editor of Metal Maniacs is also doing a country music magazine. So change your name to Mike G. You could be Mike Greenblatt for the country magazine, but be Mike G. They, these people have to think you're a metalhead. So here's an obvious question. Did Mike become accustomed to extreme and heavy metal? In other words, did he eventually like it? I was never a metalhead, really. Uh, but I grew to love metal, thrash in particular, uh, uh, black metal, uh, uh, death metal in particular, because I got my, my harmony and melody from other genres. I was, I was also listening to other genres. That's where my harmony and melody came in. I didn't want melody in, in, uh, in metal music. That's why I never liked the power metal bands. I always thought they were silly. Metal maniacs covered groups that otherwise could never have appeared in a glossy print publication for mainstream circulation. Many of the bands are the extreme edge of extreme metal. So given metal isn't one of the favourite genres in Mike's catalogue, why did he even bother doing it? I think that I always liked shock value. And I always liked, my, my ex-wife accuses me of being inappropriate all the time. And I think that level of shock value, don't forget, we covered bands like Circle of Dead Children. Uh, we covered AC, which I wouldn't even say what AC stands for on this program. <laughs> we covered uh, Dying Fetus. Uh, and I. I even remember my headline, uh, trapped in the amniotic sack of newfound fame, dying fetus. And I liked that shock value. I liked the fact that we were getting letters from prisoners all over America that were reading our magazine. I liked the fact that I was able to insert some non-metal things in the context of a metal magazine. And I would get letters saying, hey, Thanks for mentioning the great jazz crazy man, Felonious Monk. 
we got very political in, uh, in Metal Maniacs. So it was a combination of, of uh, tweaking the establishment, so to speak, which I always love to do, and uh, shock value, basically. We will go deeper and profile some of the sub-editors that joined Mike on his considerable journey at Metal Maniacs a little later, because he's about to mention some familiar names that old-school listeners will be familiar with. But how did Mike and his team determine what content was worthy of appearing in the magazine? We used to have a very strict rule. What is Maniac's material? Is that Maniac's material? Oh, we can't do that band. It's not Maniac's material. And this went on and on, and we would debate and yell and argue and so forth. And I would usually give in to Liz or Catherine or Jeff on exactly what was Maniac's material. Yeah, because I remember we did, I did uh, Insane Clown Posse. They didn't belong, but their sense of shock value appealed to me. And, and the publicist wanted to uh, fly me to some place in the States to do an interview with them. And I had a crush on the publicist, as a matter of fact. And, and so fine, I, I, I did Insane Clown Posse. And I was, you know, Liz didn't like that. Yep, sorry Mike, got to agree with Liz on that point. Ah yes, an old favourite, suffocation with Pierce from within. That's more like it. Now for a fellow that professes not to be a metalhead, he sure demonstrates a deep understanding and awareness of what it takes to polish some of the most extreme sounds into something vaguely listenable. So let me just mention uh, a reason in Metal Maniacs uh, that we gravitated towards thrash and uh, 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 death metal. Um, the producers of these records were smart. The smart producers knew to keep the vocals on death metal records, a thin line hovering above the mix, almost like a percussive line. Because if you mix the vocals too loud, it, it's, a, it's obnoxious and it obliterates the musicianship of the whole band. How many times have I got a record in the mail that, that man, they were tight, uh, uh, they were rocking, and then the minute the singer opens his mouth, the whole thing turns to shit. So you gotta have the vocals in, 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 uh, in thrash, in black metal. Well, maybe not black metal because there's such screeching going on. I remember Danny in Cradle of Filth was so over the top that that was like the exception to the rule. But, but when it came to death metal, in all these death metal bands, the good ones kept the vocals a thin line hovering above the mix. Metal Maniacs covered bands that had a tremendous impact on my life both as a music fan and as a musician. Nestled between the embers of the 1980s glam metal movement and the looming grunge meteor that changed commercial music's paradigms, there were bands like Fishbone, King's X, Living Colour, a metal-oriented Bad Brains, and 24-7 Spies. These bands were all signed to major labels and they achieved 
commercial success. The bands these days, they're critically revered. However, did Mike believe that enduring commercial success was possible for metal and rock bands whose members mostly comprised of African-Americans playing groove and funk-oriented metal? No, I really didn't. And that's why we jumped on it when they did, because I knew their time would be limited. Uh, and uh, they really made really good records. Their gigs were so much fun. The members of the bands that Metal Maniacs covered made a big impression on Mike. I've spoken to almost 600 musicians at this point for my podcast series and also for my work in the media, and I can say without a doubt that the familiar names that you'll hear Mike mention, well, they're polite and they're great company. And that seemed to be the experience overall, especially when compared to musicians whose music was more, let's say, commercially oriented. Wow, you know, there was a lot of bands that I got along great with. Bobby Blitz from Overkill was one of my, was one of my favorites. We, I remember we had the greatest discussion because I, I was telling them, it doesn't matter. You don't need lyrics. You could just phonetically sing what you're singing with no lyrics whatsoever, sort of like a metal version of scatting, and it would still work. Uh, and we laughed about that. And I swear on that next Overkill album, there was a song where, where he just was uh, screaming in that lion's roar of his. Uh, and I think he took me up on that. Plus Chuck Billy from Testament. What a great guy. Uh, he flew, their label flew me and my ex-wife out to San Francisco. They wined and dined us. He was such a sweet guy. And I've learned that the more violent, brutal, extreme metal bands were the nicest guys as compared to the hair metal bands that Metal Edge always covered, like Winger and Warrant and Skid Row and Bon Jovi and, and all of these bands, Cinderella, you know, one after another, they were all so truly awful. Uh, but, but the metal bands, they were really nice guys. Mike edited the country music magazine in tandem with Metal Maniacs, and he found an unlikely ally in his love for the genre through one of the biggest names in heavy metal and hard rock. The guy from Metallica, James Hetfield, because he was such a great Waylon Jennings fan. Uh, Waylon Jennings being the greatest country singer ever, in my opinion, and he did this song called Do You Think That Hank Done It This Way? On a Waylon tribute, James Hetfield recorded, Do You Think Hank Done It This Way? And it was just great. I really got along great with, with Hetfield, yeah, yeah. As the editor of Metal Maniacs, you're entitled to some perks. And Mike was treated to some famous Southern hospitality by a fellow whose principal band certainly rivals Metallica in the popularity stakes. Bill Anselmo, uh, I'll never forget when they flew me down to New Orleans to go to his house in the swamps and he had a band, he had like 16 bands at the same time, Phil Anselmo. This particular band was, I believe it was called Super Joint Ritual, something to that effect. And the bass player, uh, to my utter shock and amazement, was the grandson of Hank Williams. And I freaked. And I kept following him around Phil Anselmo's house, asking him about his father, Hank Williams Jr., and his grandfather. And he didn't want to, he says, I'm here to talk about super joint ritual, dude. He wouldn't give me the time of day. Uh, it's too bad. 
And he had, he had this huge bag of pot that he kept uh, carrying around with him. Uh, and he wouldn't give anybody any. And uh, But I kept trying, kept trying, and I failed miserably. But Anselmo was, was really cool. What a fabulous guy. And his wife was really sexy. And uh, it, was a, it was a hell of a junket to New Orleans to see uh, Super Joint Ritual. That stands out in my mind. Okay, so we are well into talking about the characters that Mike met and interviewed. But there is one band that is his absolute favourite, and that band, great choice too, Mike, by the way, is King's X. Look, every year Mike interviewed the band's bassist and vocalist, and as an avid reader and a big fan of King's X, it was something I always look forward to. Doug Pinnock was the, was the outsider, and plus he was extremely intellectual, and our conversations never stayed within the parameters of metal. Sociological, political, uh, he was great. I also got close to Ty Tabor, the lead guitarist. What a flowery, beautiful, Beatlesque lead guitarist. I used to tell people, uh, imagine Crosby, Stills and Nash fronting Metallica. You know, the harmonies were so beautiful and so complex, yet the music was rock hard and throwing a little sly in the family stone too, because they were funky. And, and they really encapsulated everything that I loved about this music. These days, we are well aware that metal isn't just the domain of burly blokes tearing it up on stage. But back in the day, it was a bit different. Women were few and far between. And Mike was especially taken with a particular German songstress. I had such a crush on Dora. She had the cutest German accent that was so sweet her blonde hair, the lipstick she used, for the way about her. She was totally different than the ball-busting bitch on stage, the heavy metal mama on stage. Off stage, she was sweet and demure and intelligent and, and cozied up to me. Of course, she wanted to sell records. So, you know, but I really, really, uh, really had a crush on Doro. I'll never forget reading a yarn by Mike around the year 2001 with Doro as its subject matter. As our meeting was conducted over Zoom, I could see Mike blushing as he recalled the episode. Oh God, now I've, I've crossed the line a couple of times. Uh, and, and and yeah, yeah, I remember doing that. I, I was highly embarrassed by that. I'm married at the time. And and I basically said that I would leave my wife for you. I would go on the road with you. I would devote the rest of my life to you. I'll be your humble slave and adoring supplicant. I know. Motorhead main man Lemmy is a legend, he's an icon of the industry. His place in the hearts and minds of hard rock and metal fans is all but assured. Now Lemmy came from an era though, when bands used Nazi symbols for shock value. But there's no evidence that Lemmy or any of the members of Motorhead believed in the ideology, but it's something Mike took exception to as he explains. I had a little tip with Lemmy of Motorhead down in Florida. They sent me to do Motorhead and Slayer. And I'm on the bus with Motorhead and uh, Lemmy got me so drunk. And we're passing around a bottle of Jack Daniels and he starts talking about Hitler. And I'm like, Lemmy, 
I'm a Jewish guy. Come on, I don't get into that. He goes, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Now his enthusiasm for the, uh, the importance, he, he said, Hitler's the first rock star. And he's explaining to me about the Nuremberg rallies and how they use the, the Klieg lights and how he would enter the, the rallies and so forth that predated rock and roll concerts, but used some of the same production techniques. That's all he meant. But at the time, I got very upset and I stormed out of the interview. I told him to go fuck himself. And uh, I had my tape recorder was still on, but it was on pause. So, and I was drunk. And so I walked from Lemmy's bus to Tom Araya's bus with Slayer. And I started to do that interview, not realizing that the entire interview was done with my tape recorder on pause. As an interviewer, for the duration of a conversation with a musician, I get plenty of feedback from podcast listeners that it sounds like we're old friends catching up after many years apart. But we're not. We are talking for a reason, and it's something that Mike also never lost sight of either. You know, it's funny. These musicians, uh, they treat me really great, but they all have motives, personal motives. They want to sell records. And as nice as they were to me, there really hasn't been any long-lasting friendships that came out of that uh, decades-long journalistic foray into hard rock and heavy metal. Uh, And that's okay. That's fine. It was a symbiotic relationship. Uh, It was a form of mutualism. I sold magazines. They sold records. They weren't my friends, quote unquote. It was the same thing when I did the country magazine. These people aren't my friends. It was a journalist, artist. And that stayed with me my whole career. I've spoken to the members of Satyricon, Watain, Emperor, Cradle of Filth, Venom, and a heap more. Now, not for a moment do I believe that these blackened metal artists are personally religiously satanic or anti-Christian. What I believe they do is use Christianity as the iconography to rally against consumerism, mainstream culture, and anything else that annoys them. Still, many of the bands in the pages of Metal Maniacs expressed anti-Christian sentiments through their lyrics and many readers thought that was hypocritical of Mike for reasons he'll explain. I got taken to task for being against the anti-Jewish bands, but and I wouldn't write about them, but I did let the anti-Christian bands, you know, the, the Satan bands, the bands that set fire on churches. Uh, I wrote about them and I was accused, and probably rightly so, you're, you're, you're a Jew. You don't like the anti-Jewish bands, but you don't mind the anti-Christian bands. That's hypocrisy. I guess they were right. This next point is important. I want you to catch everything that Mike says. Before we get to that, though, here's what I've got to say. I remember reading more than just a handful of letters to the editor. The content in these letters called Mike and some of the members of his staff racial epithets unsuitable for broadcast. We live in a day and age where cancel culture is rampant. Accusations of racism are frequent and simply mentioning that you can find plenty of thoughtful insight in the words of Canadian academic Dr Jordan Peterson can break a friendship. But Mike wasn't afraid to publish any of the letters he received, no matter how toxic it might be by yesterday's or today's standards. He had no issue shining a light on bigotry and racism. This ensured that his readership knew 
that the views and opinions, they were out there, they were in the community. And there's a lesson in that. Yeah, well, uh, I was I was cold on the carpet for it. I was almost fired a few times for it. But I felt that it important to shine, as you say, to shine a light on ugliness, to shine a light on hate, so that you know it's there. Uh, these these uh, far-right-wing white supremacist bands, uh, these misogynistic bands, uh, they're out there. And I just felt it was important to uh, to focus on them so that my readers knew that they were out there. They also knew where I stood. I was fairly obvious. Uh, I've always been a left-wing liberal Democrat from way back, and I, I still remain. I still remain that way uh, at 69, where I was when I was uh, 16 and 17. Uh, you know, my heroes are people like Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie, uh, people that uh, they thought they branded as communists, they branded as socialists. Um, I think it's important to shine a light on the ugly because there is no beauty unless there's ugly. Okay, let's talk about the sub-editors that became household names to metal maniacs readers such as myself. Heard of Blabbermouth? Yeah, that guy. He's one of Mike's protégés, and that was long before the heavy metal aggregation site got its start. Corey Kirkin was was one of my best writers. Uh, he was always he had his he had his head to the ground. He 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 heard everything. He understood everything, and I really leaned on him. I remember Liz Chiavarella Brenner's passionate defense of Megadeth's "The World Needs a Hero." That album that was released in two thousand and one, I found little to agree with her as she compared the album to a pair of well worn and comfortable sweatpants or tracksuit pants, as we say in Australia. But she's a great writer and she continues to be an important member of the global extreme metal community via her work with Airsplit PR. No doubt about it. She was fabulous. Uh, in our job interview, uh, she took me to lunch, and she gave me a book about the Holocaust. And that's a way to a man's heart, is to give him a book about the Holocaust. She, she knew me, apparently. Uh, and I hired her on the spot, and that was the great, great decision. So between Liz C., uh, Jeff Wagner and Catherine Ludwig, I had some great, great help. Catherine Ludwig was Mike's right hand in the magazine's early years. She was the driving force. She lost her battle with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in 2015, and she is fondly remembered. It was her enthusiasm and her knowledge uh, that made the magazine what it was. Uh, I did the very first issue of Metal Maniacs, and it wasn't the Metal Maniacs you know and love. It was a crazy pastiche of, uh, we had a, a full page color pinup, for instance, of Blackie Lawless in diapers. And we did that first issue, and, uh, and then I was asked to do the country thing, and I basically gave the magazine to Catherine, and boy, did she run with it. She was Metal Maniacs, for a certain amount of years until she had to leave and it was forced back into my hands. And that's when I leaned on Jeff Wagner and Liz Shiverella. But you, I, I cannot say enough about Catherine Mudd. Catherine took exception to some bands. For example, Glenn Benton from Deerside shot an animal that Glenn said was causing damage to his property. So she put an embargo on Deerside. 
and I think Cannibal Corpse made the same shit list due to a perception the band's horror gore lyrics were actually plain old misogyny. She was a vegan, you know? She was highly moral. She was highly political. Uh, she stuck to her guns. It's one of the reasons I loved her so much. She was uh, different from any other music journalist I've ever encountered, who I've ever edited or worked with. She stood her ground. She was profane and uh, angry at times, yet she could be absolutely joyous. And uh, right, she had sticks against various bands for whatever reasons. I think, she, in fact, I think it was Catherine that hipped me to the fact of these far-right Nazi-type bands. And she refused to put them in the magazine. And I, I learned from her. And I carried that later. There, there was, a, there was a, oh, God, I don't remember the name of these bands. It was a whole label of bands, actually, that were sort of white supremacists back in the 90s. And uh, she was the one that put her foot down and said, no, other, other uh, bands, she put her foot down because they were seemingly misogynistic. And in their lyrics, there was uh, uh, lyrics about um, women in a very derogatory way. I mean, rap music went through that same kind of thing, too. But it was Catherine that pointed me out, that pointed out to me the misogyny, the racism uh, in a lot of these bands. And she put her foot down. So I hail her. Other sub-editors were Alicia Morgan and Jeff Wagner. Now, we didn't talk a lot about Jeff, but it was actually his writing and selection of bands that had a huge impact on my own taste. Mike talks about the reasons for his own exit from the magazine and its enduring influence afterwards, offering platitudes to Jeff and the other sub-editors. Well, I got fired because I was living in Pennsylvania, uh, working remotely, back in the 90s for, let's say, 40 grand a year. And my assistant, Liz, who lived the life and who was the real thing, they could hire for 20 grand a year. And they, she'd be there every day. So it was a no-brainer on a business level. They put me out to pasture after a while. But what she did, what Catherine did, what Jeff Wagner did cannot be underestimated. And I do know that the magazine has grown in stature. It's become something of a collector's item amongst a certain demographic. I'm, I am well aware of that, yeah. The magazine folded in 2009 and there was no real warning given. Readers weren't given a heads up and the staff were denied. An opportunity to give metal maniacs a send off it so richly deserved. I understand that there was talk of keeping the masthead alive online, but I can't ever recall that happening. To this day, it's dormant, but maybe someday it'll rise again. There was uh, those kinds of conversations. There really was. The guy that did Metal Edge, Paul Gargano, I think, bought both Metal Edge and Metal Maniacs for online consumption. I just don't know whatever happened to it because I, I lost touch with him. For me, Mike G, he's an icon, the most important figure in the media throughout my youth. But surely I can't be the only one that feels this way. I had one fleeting moment where I was doing an interview uh, for a book that I wrote on Woodstock. As you can see, I'm wearing my Woodstock shirt, which I attended in 1969 when I was 18 years old, and it took me 49 years to write the Woodstock book. Um, but I did an, a Woodstock interview, and the guy uh, realized halfway through the interview that I was also the guy from Metal Maniacs, and he freaked out. 
And I realized for the first time that there's a certain demographic of young males that might have been late teens, 20s, in the 90s that really revered that magazine. And that's the first time that I really realized that. He said, oh, dude, you're blowing my mind. You're Mike G. And I'm like, uh, yeah. So, so, you know, you're the second guy now that has, has complimented me thus. So, Mike, from the bottom of my extreme metal-loving heart, I can't thank you enough for doing what you did with Metal Maniacs. The magazine has a special place in my life, and I'll never forget it. You're welcome. I'm, I'm honoured to be uh, remembered in such a positive light. That's awesome. Thank you. Metal Maniacs is firmly in the review mirror for Mike. These days, as he said up top, he's got a new book to promote, and life, it seems, couldn't be sweeter. Last year, 2019, was the best year of my life because my book came out and my my daughter and grandchildren moved next door and it was such a wonderful year. And I got to be like a little celebrity speaking at libraries and and Barnes and Noble bookstores and and watch the books sell and watch the people's reactions. All I've ever done my entire life is listen to music and tell people about it. And I've never had another job uh, 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 other than listening to music and telling people about it. And I still do it today. And it all comes from Woodstock when I was 18. You can get it on Amazon. Check it out. My name is Andrew Mackay-Smith, and I'm the host of the Scars and Guitars podcast series. It only seems right that I give Mike the final word and thank you for listening. Thank you for giving me this form. That was a lot of fun.